I always end up singing on this podcast and I need to stop because that's usually what makes the opener and I don't like it. <laughs> Good day and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome to the Insomnia Report episode 32. 32 coming at you. I'm like one of those callers at uh, Portillo's. Portillo's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Number 41, your order is done. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are the two friends and roommates that like to talk about the things. That keep us up at night. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for listening. Today we got a wild card for you. Who knows what it's going to be? No idea. It's going to be wild, I think. Wild and crazy on this Wednesday night. It's only Wednesday. Wow. (laughs) Wow. So I will go ahead and light the candle or Mm. do the thing we do, the ritual. It is a ritual, isn't it? It is. Uh, Would you like to tell me about your week? Hmm. My week. I mean, if you slept soundly, it's okay. Oh, no. I had the weirdest dream last night. Ooh, tell me. Let's let's analyze it. It was so... Okay, well, there are a couple different dreams. Ooh. A lot in your subconscious? The other, the the one super weird dream I had was it was you and me, it was you and me and a bunch of other people we know, and we were in like this mass um, like VR game. Ooh, spooky. Like you know how people like wear the goggles and whatever? Yeah, they're, they're and play wild. A game. Mm-hmm. I've never done it. Have you done it? I, there, I went to the Museum of Contemporary Art. And they had something there, and it was weird. Oh, with the internet exhibit? Yeah. yeah. Something like that. I went to that I never did times. the game. I mean, I've done laser tag, but not a yeah. VR game. We should do it, maybe. We'll find one, sure. Um, But anyway, so, yeah, we were in this, like, gigantic VR game, but it was, like, super violent, and there were, like, zombies everywhere. Nice. And then the game kind of ended, but, like, I was still in there, and I, like, couldn't figure out how to, like get out and sound stressed it was really weird i have that irrational fear that i'll get i don't know like jumanji oh yeah you know i don't know i guess it's not an irrational fear but i've always had that like in the back of my head i'm like what if i got caught in here i don't know yeah yeah then after that i googled vr places around here and there are a few good to know (laughs) i don't know if that makes me want to do it or not but okay I hope you survived the zombie game that you were stuck in. I think I stuck did. In. Yeah. Well, you're here, so it's okay. Yeah. Was I good? Was I a good player? Yeah, you were nice. excellent. Okay, thank you. I needed that validation. <laughs> uh, what's kept you up? Um, I have just had internal guilt because I've been ordering takeout a whole lot because mm-hmm. I haven't gone to the grocery store and I 
haven't really had time or the motivation to cook because I've been so busy Mm -hmm. and all over the place and I'm about to travel. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to, I don't know. So in the back of my head, I I feel kind of guilty about it, but it's not like I have food here that I'm wasting. Right. Either. You got to eat something. Right. But I don't know. In the back of my mind, I'm like, why am I doing this? But it's okay. I think that's about it. My sleep schedule is screwed up. Like last night, I could I went to bed at like 1 and then I couldn't fall asleep until like 3.30 and then oh. I woke up at 6 and was like, you know what? We're just going for it. It's fine. Yeah. I, I'm not working on Friday because I'm traveling to Nebraska, so it's okay. So tomorrow's technically my Friday. You can sleep a- on the plane to Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. We'll see what happens. I might read a book because my next book club meeting is on Tuesday. It's not going to happen. I don't have time <laughs> to read an entire ass book. You can listen to it. I could. We'll see. TBD. Anyway. TBD. Stay tuned. Will I read? Probably not. (laughs) Story of my life. Based on historical data, (laughs) my hypothesis (laughs) says no. There we go. Fire. I feel like Tom Hanks in Castaway. That was a stressful scene. Doesn't he, like, cut himself? Yes. Well, he does that, but then when he makes fire for the first time, he's like, oh, fire! You know, like, yeah. Tom Hanks voice. Yes. I <laughs> love that man. Yes, I do, too. I love him very much. Tell oh. me something wild. Okay. It's not very wild. Um, maybe it is. I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> well, thanks. Okay. Um, I'm doing some name association because that's how I like to start these sometimes so I'm gonna list some names of some people and I want you to tell me either the first thing you think of or what you know them for okay okay Walt Disney Mickey Mouse Mm -hmm. Oprah Winfrey the interview she did with Harry and uh, (laughs) Megan James Dyson is that the vacuum guy yeah okay J.K. Rowling uh, Harry Potter. Uh, you hesitated. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say transphobia. Oh, okay. But Harry mm. Potter. <laughs> okay. Thomas Edison. The light bulb. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Films. Albert Einstein. E equals M C squared. <laughs> Bill Gates. Uh. E- uh, computers. Mm-hmm. Also newly single. <laughs> yeah, oof. <laughs> uh, Beyonce. Single ladies. Colonel Sanders. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Jim Carrey. The Mask? Was mm-hmm. he in that? Yeah, okay. Michael Jordan. Basketball. Stephen King. Books. Yep. <laughs> what do all these people have in common? They're famous. Mm-hmm. Do they have like offshore accounts somewhere? Do they all know Jeffrey Epstein? <gasps> no, I wouldn't that be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Walt Disney well, and him. Oh, no. over. Well, Bill Same. Gates. Bill Gates. Maybe. Uh, uh, mm. So they are failures. Oh. They have failed. But to your point, we do not know them for their failures. We know right. them for their success. But 
but they have failed many, many times. And who would have thought that these millionaires would never think like Michael Jordan is a failure? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they are, but they have failed. Anyway, (laughs) that that sounded better in my head. But (laughs) I know um, what you mean. So Walt Disney, for example, he worked for a newspaper and he had one of his editors say say that he lacked imagination and didn't have any creative ideas. Wow. Little did he know. Albert Einstein didn't start to speak until he was four years old. He failed his school entry exams and he was actually a door-to-door insurance salesman. Did not know that. Thomas Edison had a teacher say he was, quote, too stupid to learn. Oh, my God. And he was fired from two of his jobs in his career. Mm. Steven Spielberg was rejected from the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts multiple times. Wow. Rude. (laughs) (laughs) They later named the school after him. They're like, sorry about that. Wow. Uh, J.K. Rowling was rejected by 12 different publishers for Harry Potter. Oh, my gosh. She was also a single mom living on welfare at Mm. the time. Jim Carrey, the comedian, was booed off a stage. Hmm. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. got a C in public speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. Vincent Van Gogh only sold one painting when he was alive. And Michael Jordan didn't make his high school varsity basketball team. (laughs) Wow. So the thing... And I sort of touched on this because, as I mentioned in episode 30, it's it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And mm-hmm. I think that there is such a huge fear of failure because of what we have been taught about success. However, and I think the, the fear can range or or how it's brought up. I think it's the mindset of we... Maybe we don't have a very supportive system, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's our peers or teachers or family members. uh, We don't want to be humiliated or we may not be able to recover from that. We worry about what other people may think or we have such a strive for perfection. What have you? We all fail. However, I think there are certain ways that we can go about failure and I think I can obviously say that the people I listed, had they not continued, mm-hmm. I mean, you would never think any of those people would be considered someone who had failed. Right. Because when you think of Einstein, you're like, he's a brainiac. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think of Walt Disney, he was incredibly creative and like he, anyway, it, it just, I'm just trying to make a point that... No one is perfect, even these celebrities, even these millionaires, even the people that we do look up to or the media or entertainment industry or entrepreneurs look up to. So in an article from Medium, Paul Ellsworth sums it up beautifully when he said, we see failure as the end result of our efforts or worse, we see it as the definition of our character. So I think I can generalize when I say that a lot of kids nowadays don't fail. Like that makes me sound old when I'm my kids these days, but mm-hmm. hear me out. 
I mean, like the thing with participation awards Mm -hmm. is everyone gets a trophy at the end of the season, whether or not the team actually won the championship. So for example, when I was a little tyke back in second grade, I was in a soccer league and our team name was the Scooby-Doo's. And it really wasn't for me. I I liked soccer, but I, I was also in dance at the time and dance was more my thing, but I still did it. I like the orange slices at halftime and mm-hmm. uh, right. But I would literally sit on the field, pull in the grass, watch the and watch the ball roll past me and I would just my head would just follow it. I literally did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And like my coach would be like, Margo, go after the ball. And then I said, You go after the ball. So my mom was like, Okay, I think we're done. <laughs> um but, but at the end of the season, I still got a trophy. Did I deserve that trophy? I don't think so. Did I get one? Yeah. I mean, I showed up. I did what the coaches asked of me during practice. But did I truly earn it? No. Hmm. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went because my mom told me to go because she signed me up and she thought it'd be fun. Um, yeah. My brothers did soccer and they liked it, but I'm, I'm not a runner. Anyway, long story short, I think... I mean, it, when we get these participation awards or when, you know, everyone's involved or everyone makes the team or that sort of thing, I think it's great because it allows kids to socialize. But when they get to a certain point, I think it is, it doesn't feel as rewarding. Mm-hmm. And I think we know when we get undeserving rewards. It, it doesn't feel the same of like, yeah, we won. It's like, oh, everyone, like, okay. So a big highlight from one of the articles I read was, when we deny our children the opportunity to fail, we deny them the opportunity to grow. Dr. Sadagi further mentions that the most important step towards growth and change is taking personal responsibility for one's own life. So another thing is if we have parents that are constantly doing things for us or you know if we get a bad grade they're the ones like that are emailing the teacher rather than working on what did you do wrong or oh my kid doesn't whatever or you know if if their room's messy it's just easier for the parent to like clean it up because Mm -hmm. it's like it would take me five minutes that rather I think sometimes we need the hands-on experience or we need the discipline at an early age And uh, Dr. Sadegi's advice is to learn as we go and to make sure we continue to practice. So that all being said, the beautiful thing about failure in itself is it forces us to take a step back and we have choices that we can make from there and we can evaluate what are our goals. If, If this didn't work out, is this important enough to me to continue to work on it and we have to reevaluate what steps are needed to take do I need to reach out for additional help do I need to you know start running on a daily basis so I can make a better time to make it on the team or uh you know what do we take a path that is safer and just say you know what okay whatever I'm over it and then we don't try out next year or do we sit with that pain or that disappointment and do we further try to prove to ourselves that this does matter and 
I am worthy of finding the success. Uh, So what really means the most to us? When we fail, we build resilience in that we are able to problem solve and plan for the next time around. And it allows us to figure out what skills you have and what can be done to further improve them. So to my point earlier, some of the most successful people have failed many times. However, when we look at J.K. Rowling, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Jordan, we don't go, look at that person, they failed a lot. We highlight where they are, but then we can take a step back and I guess relate to the fact that they are human and that they didn't get there overnight. Like no one is, unless it's like monarchy or something, mm-hmm. no one's born into that, which is, I guess, why we like a comeback story, you know? Um, right. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is in our society, we highlight the accomplishments, but we also often don't put light onto what the journey looked like to get there. We all know failure is a part of life, but it's not glamorized. And I'm not trying to make it seem glamorous or or say like everyone should try to fail. But I think it's just reframing the way we approach failure. However, when we fail, it gives us a false sense of accomplishment and it can cause us to self-sabotage if we don't have a healthy way of learning from it. So... In one TED Talk I listened to, we have the vision of failure rather than vision and success. So we tend to think of, as someone with an anxiety disorder, one of my favorite quotes is, I asked myself, what could go wrong? And my anxiety said, I'm so glad you asked. Mm -hmm. So we are so afraid of failing that sometimes we may not even try or we take the easy route. Like, don't get me wrong, failure sucks. And like I said, I'm not trying to glamorize it. It it is uncomfortable, but it we have to regroup and, and try again. So we have to also think, what is our biggest goal? Is our biggest goal getting an A? But like, how are we going to get it? Are we going to resolve to cheating because we want to get that short-term gold star? Or do we actually want to take this step and put in the time to further develop it? Do we need constant validation? Are we just getting to our end goal because we want someone to say great job or you got a hundred percent or that's a, a good company to work for but are you actually working in a field that you're passionate about I remember I took a business ethics course my dad always says like that's an oxymoron but <laughs> <laughs> um I I remember this moment where our professor was lecturing and he I don't remember what the topic was or how it prompted this, but he said to all of us, if you really want to learn about yourself, get fired from a job. Mm. He wasn't saying like, you know, slack off so you can experience getting fired. But if you really want to figure out what your values are, how you process things, how you can pick yourself back up, it's it's a point where it makes you vulnerable. You figure out who your support system is. You figure out what steps you need to take and like he he made light of it he's like yeah I've been fired a bunch of times like it sucked but like I think everyone should do it and I was like what it was like my second day of college (laughs) I was like okay um but there is a professor from Stanford and her name is Carol Dweck 
and she gives a fabulous TED Talk. I remember when I worked my old sales role, we watched it during training or whatever, but it's it's called Growth or Fixed Mindset, and I encourage everyone to watch it at some point, but a growth mindset is when you use your failures to improve But when you have a fixed mindset, you may never fail, but at the same time, you never learn or grow. So she starts by explaining about a school in Chicago that if at the end of the year and you get your grades, whatever grade you get, if for whatever reason you didn't pass, instead of saying failed, it says not yet. Mm, I love that. I do too. So then it automatically frames it into thinking there is a move forward, there is some sort of path that can be taken into getting it in the future. So sure, I didn't pass yet, or I am not there yet. It's not like, oh, I failed, like I'm terrible, I'm not smart enough. It's, it's okay, you're not there yet, mm-hmm. and you need to work on getting there, which I think is great. I don't know what school it was, but I like it. A failure makes us feel stuck or like one can't move forward, but with the not yet, it creates the pathway for getting there or a framework in the mind that automatically puts it in a different light. Someone with a fixed mindset will see a challenge or failure and think that they do not have the abilities or they are not able to make changes so if they receive feedback they tend to feel attacked Mm -hmm. um they think core intelligence is being tested or if they do fail they are more devastated uh they think success is set on a specific goal in one study with fixed mindset dr dweck said if they failed they might be more likely to cheat the next time like students had admitted that or they would try to find a classmate that did worse than them to make themselves feel better <laughs> so as we touched on a previous episode like what did you get it's like shut up yeah now with someone with a growth mindset uh this is someone who thinks that things can be improved through practice so They think of failure as the ability to change or they can learn and pivot. They seek feedback and they have it as something that is a valuable tool. And they seek challenging tasks. Uh, They view obstacles as a way to gain experience. Those that believe your talents or success are fixed that person tends to be avoiding failure at all costs. So some of her students or the children that she observed in these studies said that they tend to even go to tasks that are easier. So they might even pick solving a jigsaw puzzle that they've already finished or had solved in the past rather than trying a harder one with more pieces. CEOs that have a fixed mindset surround themselves with people that agree with them. And if someone has a growth mindset, on the other hand, there is enjoyment in feeling like they are learning or feeling that they're smart, but they realize that they're not flawless. 
And what's more is they also looked at the brain activity of these students. So they got neurologists to look at those with a fixed mindset. And when they were learning something new and difficult, there was almost no activity. Whereas in the growth mindset, when they were learning something, there was more neurons being added to the brain. So Mm. it was being stimulated, which is literally growing your brain to make stronger connections. That's amazing. Yeah. Professor Dweck said that when it comes to child development or, you know, educators or or what have you, you it's important to praise, but you need to be wise about how you praise. So instead of praising a certain skill or you're really pretty or you're really smart, you should instead praise the process or the effort or the focus as well as like if they were persevering or if they've made an improvement from the last time. So this provides a long-term learning or, or confidence boost. She also conducted a later study that showed if a parent uh, views failure in a certain way, it can also shape how the child develops later on. So neurologists have studied thousands of students and when we make mistakes, it literally makes our brains grow in a certain way. Wow. So according to an article in Harvard Business Review, um, when it was given advice to managers, if you want to help your employees grow every once in a while, like not every day, but (laughs) you should give your workers a task that is a little above their typical day-to-day task or above their ability and have a conversation of, I expect this will take a while and I want you to work at it. And, you know, this is something that might take a little bit longer than your typical task, but um, it's okay if mistakes happen and assure them they can do it because that gives them a boost of, oh, they're they're challenging me. So they have a, a mindset of my boss has confidence in me to give me this harder project. And it's not a, you need to do this and some, it's like, okay, I need you to work on it. It's going to take a while. So they're like, okay, like I'm going to take a stab at it mm-hmm. instead of, you know, just a typical day to day. So it shows confidence in the worker while it's also f- continuing to build the employee's abilities too. So in all, failure teaches us about ourselves. Um, it also as I mentioned, it, it teaches us a lot about our support systems if if people are there for us when we are at a low. But in turn, it also teaches us how to be empathetic and humble in times where it happens because it's not always, look at me, like I never fail. It's, hey, like, can, do you want any help with this or can I give you feedback? It's, it's like I know where you are at this time. So failure teaches us patience, the value of hard work once we reach that yet. There, he said that. If you have children, or I guess this is beneficial at any age really, but teach your kids or your peers or your workers, whatever situation you're in, to praise the effort. Or you can say things like, I know you worked really hard on this. Or if they are stuck Uh, take a pause and and encourage them to take a pause and ask, how do you plan on problem solving this the next time? Or you can normalize mistakes and ask them what they did 
and try to get them to understand what didn't work rather than just like putting your head down and being like, I failed. Mm-hmm. Studies have shown that praise and skills or intelligence doesn't actually make kids more motivated, but when the process is praised or when their focus is their strategies or, or so forth, that is actually what tends to lead to more motivation in students. Um, it's also important to validate the feelings or experience of failure and use it to frame future efforts. So like I said, it's important to sit in the process and to think of, about what they are feeling and, and, you know, to sit with the failure and why it's uncomfortable and, and what can be done. So if you ever feel the inner critic stepping in, look towards the growth mindset. And if you have a negative thought, reframe it. So Thomas Edison, as I mentioned earlier, is a successful failure. And he has a famous quote that essentially says, I wouldn't consider it failing 10,000 times. I've simply found 10,000 ways that didn't work. Hmm. Um, And I love that. It, it also, I also wanted to make a note, um, I also wanted to make note of a study that was done by the National Institute of Health. So they studied groups of junior scientists that were applying for grants through the um, National Institute of Health or the NIH, and they took the scientists that either just made the approval, so they got it by like a little margin or another group that just missed it. Mm. So we have like a group that received the grant, a a group that didn't, but by very slim margins. And what researchers further did was they tracked the two different groups over several years to see, I guess, what the output would be or what publications they would come up down the road. And the study consisted of 561 narrow wins, so people that just made it, and then 623 people that just didn't receive the grant. After reviewing the submissions and publications of the two groups over the years, they found the publications of those that had missed the grants the first time were more likely to produce publications that were more successful, more well-received, or more so referenced in in later articles. Wow. So it was more so of a hit than the ones that actually received the grants in the first place. So they actually tested this multiple times over the years to see if it was just, you know, a a one-time thing or maybe just a coincidence, but they did find that this was consistent over the years. Hmm. And to directly quote the findings, these... Results document that despite an early setback, near misses outperformed narrow wins over the longer run, uh, conditional on remaining active in the NIH system. The find in itself had a striking implication. Indeed, take two researchers who are seeking to continue their careers in science. While both near miss and narrow win applicants published high impact papers at a higher rate, than their peers, comparing between the two groups, it is the one who had failed that is more likely to write a higher impact paper in the future. Um, So if you want to better help yourself and others 
to celebrate the small wins or to call out someone that deserves it, though that can go a really long way. Um, other ways that you can work on reframing it is to practice mindfulness and set goals both in the short term and the long run. If you do have a long-term goal, break it down into smaller tangible chunks um, because if you just say, I'm going to lose 100 pounds, it's like, okay, but when? Mm-hmm. How? Like, what are you going to do? Is, is it in like by three years, by the age of 40 set? Like, right. Because if you just say that's going to happen and then it doesn't happen, it's anyway. Additionally, when it comes to failure, it, it's often easy to blame yourself or to think negatively about yourself, but you also need to consider what is in your control and what is not. So if you go and apply for a job and you interview, but they pick a different candidate, it may not have been you had a bad interview or you don't have a good resume. It's just it was a different circumstance that worked out better. Um, So it's not a reflection of you. And success does not also always mean fulfillment. In life, it's also important to set boundaries and to strive to learn. But, you know, you don't necessarily, even if you have a really good job, that doesn't necessarily have to be what fulfills you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's hard to understand because it's like you are not your work. You work to live in a, right. in a way. Like you work mm-hmm. to pay bills. You don't work to go have a great time and let's you indeed do it. Good for you. Tell me where you were. Uh, but anyway, that all being said, I, I also want you to think about what is currently stressing you out and ask yourself, will it matter tomorrow or in a week, in a month or, or 10 years from now? And chances are no. We can think about times that we have failed but can you remember what is stressing you out like a year ago today? Chances are no. No. So it's important to forgive ourselves, but it it's also to, important to remember what it took to get where you are today. Because I know, you know, middle school me was just so excited to like live on their own and have a, a big girl job. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is, this is what I wanted at some point. So why am I not happy in the now? But it's like, well, I do have a lot of great things, but... Yeah, I think it's it's definitely how we frame things or it's so easy to say, I'll be happy when I graduate and I'll be happy when I don't have to work retail or when I get a car or it's, it's mm-hmm. so easy to correlate happiness with certain milestones, but these are not the things that actually bring us happiness in the long run or they're they're not the reason that we continue to do certain things. I also thought it was interesting that studies have shown that when women make mistakes, they tend to blame themselves more, whereas when men make mistakes, they tend to blame outside factors. Hmm. If you find yourself self-sabotaging or getting in some, I do this all the time, I call it analysis paralysis, or if you fear failure or if you're doubting you can do it, Think of the worst case scenario, like if you mess up and you get fired, you find a new job. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a plan B. You can also think rationally. So if you make a mistake at work, it's not 
like you may have had a bad day, but that doesn't mean you're bad at your job. It's also important to think when you think negatively towards yourself or your failures, think you would never talk this way to a friend if you are. So talk to yourself the way you would talk to a friend because I would never look at you and be like, you idiot. Mm-hmm. I hope. No, mm-hmm. no, I would no. never. <laughs> um, but that's something I say like all the time when I, you know, make a typo in an email, just trivial things that no one's going to think about in like 30 seconds, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, when we look back and think of our happiest moments, it's a snapshot in time. Maybe it's a day or a big event, like a wedding or a milestone. Like my college graduation was a really big day for me, but it like after time, everything returns to normal. So fulfillment or being fulfilled is an ongoing process through various failures and victories. So fulfillment is not just reaching things to make you proud, but it's a carving a way to get a life that you are proud of. And a Harvard University psychologist had said, no matter what level people start at, it takes about 10,000 hours to become an expert in something. And it takes 66 days for something to become a consistent habit. So cannot emphasize enough that things take time. You do need to be patient with yourself. And even if you know, your habit that you want to form is take five minutes in the morning to write down something you're happy about. Or, you know, if you feel overwhelmed by how much laundry you have to do, one day take five minutes and sort it. And then the next day just start with one load. It's it's something that will you'll gradually chip away at. Mm-hmm. Some things that you can do in your everyday life to help you reach your self-fulfillment is to Again, figure out what your core values are and what means the most to you. So is it your family? Is it creativity? Is it alone time? And when you have that foundation, then you're able to build based off of that or prioritize. Like if you need to set boundaries because you do appreciate, you know, alone time or if you need that creative outlet, you're you're able to frame what you need in order to feel that happiness. Whereas, I mean, obviously I need to go to work. But I also need some sort of creative outlet. And Mm -hmm. and creativity is a very big value I have. So, you know, anyway, you also need to know what your ambitions are and what your passions are. So we are not born knowing what fulfills us. We find that along the way or we find things that we're good at. And I guess in Marie Kondo, like what sparks joy? Be patient with yourself and be proud of who you are because a lot of the times we will compare ourselves to others or we'll put on a mask or act a certain way or I think with social media it's you're you're just seeing these little snapshots of people and then it's easy to kind of go down a spiral and feel like you're not good enough and most importantly success is not linear there's no black and white success story like yes I, I think it would be great to be a millionaire but that's not in the cards for me you know Mm-hmm. So we can't all be doctors and lawyers. Um, I think it's important to embrace the journey. Take time to rest. Take time to reevaluate and focus and importantly, recharge. So listen to your body. If you have PTO or sick days, take them. If you are faced with adversity, how you react also speaks 
to itself. So if you throw a tantrum or if you blame others, it's like, no, you are the one that brought yourself here. Like one thing that helps, and I do a lot of like meditation apps and I have more self-help books than like the Library of Congress. I don't know, but (laughs) um, something that is proven to be successful is go to bed and write before you go to bed write down three things that went well during the day and one thing that you will do to make tomorrow even better and when you wake up write down three things that you are grateful for and one thing that you will do for yourself today you can also practice self affirmations I have a lot of sticky notes around my computer monitor with like you got this (laughs) Your hair looks nice. I remember one time you bought me a box of like affirmation band-aids. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I never used them because I was like, these are precious. So they're in my like bedside drawer at home at my parents' house. Um, And again, speak to yourself as if you were speaking to a friend. And like in summary, I'm not saying we create a new system where we, you know, kind of flip what failure and success is I'm not saying we should get a gold star for failure but I'm saying there's a difference from having failures that were avoidable and careless rather than learning from a failure that didn't work out initially and being able to know the difference Uh, your failures do not define you but your failures are a way to reset and They are a way to experiment and find an ultimate goal for continued success. So if something's not working um, and you continue to do it, that's that's not how you grow. And if something's not working and you are able to step back and say, this is not what I want, then it's time to take a new direction. So that is my spiel. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think I really like that. You're sticking to Mental Health Awareness Month. Yeah, I didn't really know the theme would be consistent, but it's just something I'm I'm passionate about, and mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about, and I think more people have it than we realize, and I think especially how we talk to ourselves matter matters, and it really makes a difference, and I think at least start in the conversation might be helpful for other people. So yeah. Anyway. No, failure is something I really struggle with too. Like yeah. in college, I wrote every single one of my papers the night before every <laughs> single one, no, like no exception because I couldn't write it earlier because I was afraid that if I did, then I'd have to reread through it mm-hmm. and see like my bad takes. But yep. if you write it at the last minute, there's, is there's you just it doesn't matter if a thousand percent there's an error you just like all right it's done yeah or I I'm so I I will literally spend so much time thinking about how I'm going to do something rather than doing it Mm -hmm. or I'm so afraid of it being bad that it's like I will it's interesting because people who are perfectionists tend to procrastinate more (laughs) 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 but i agree with you it's like i had a month to do it and here i am at 2 a.m yeah no i think it's important to have the conversations and i i think it's definitely not something that's going to change overnight and like i said i'm not trying to 
make failure seem a glamorous thing because it sucks. You're, it's mm. painful. It's awkward. It's it's hard to own up to as well. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that awareness and it's it's hard to take a step back and kind of look at things, especially when you are constantly on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important to do at least one thing for yourself every day or or set some kind of goal you know it I think it's unrealistic to just start and say like I'm gonna work out every day but rather I'm going to do one thing every day for myself and whatever if it happens to be a workout great if it's just doing a nightly skincare routine awesome like Mm -hmm. I, I think there needs to be a way to reframe success. Uh, I don't want to go on another tangent, but like we are always on the go and we are always trying to give more output. And I think there is beauty in just resetting or just sitting with our thoughts Mm -hmm. and just being in the moment rather than, okay, like I know when I go to bed and I hit the pillow, I'm like, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need, it's like, okay, like, I need to be okay with the fact that everything today is done, Mm -hmm. and it will be there when I wake up. Right. So, anyway, I'm, like, I've said many times, I'm not a psychologist, or a therapist, or all of our opinions are our own, but we do encourage you to take care of yourself, and I hope that was helpful, and again, you are not your failures, so... Okay. Thank you. I've failed many, many, many times. I've failed classes. Mm-hmm. I've I've bombed papers and exam. No, not papers. I've I've failed exams. I've f- done really cringy things. Like it's it's a. I, I'm human, you know. Like right. I'm sure Jesus made mis. No. Um. <laughs> We're human beings. I am a lima bean. <laughs> anyway, let us know what you do for mental health awareness month. Let us know what your favorite affirmation or positive quote is. Mine is, okay, I have two. One is, it is never too late or too early to be the person you've always wanted to be. Love it. And another one is, you can be a masterpiece or a work in progress at the same time. I love that too. Yes. I've read something about how like works of art are never done. No, they aren't. And you just need to be able to step away and, and just say... It's beautiful. Like, oh, yes, I agree. <laughs> As a former art major, you could literally spend 40 hours just trying to work on the curve of a nose. It's it's so, anyway. No, nothing's ever done. I'm done. I'm so done, but it's never done. Okay. When you think of the most valuable substances in the world, what comes to mind? Oxygen clean water like monetary value oh um diamonds mm. i mean those are valuable they're rare mm-hmm. um i would say bitcoin but i don't understand bitcoin <laughs> me neither <laughs> um the most valuable things i guess money right like but literally yeah. money yeah wait the most wait, say it again what's the question the most valuable substances in the world substance alcohol Weed? Eh, like like stuff that costs a lot. Cocaine. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much cocaine costs. I don't either. I, 
Like stuff that people use, like legal stuff. Guns? Well, prisons. Like a substance. Medicine. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just like, this is just a warm up. A, a spaceship. Oh, yeah. Substance? Expensive. Substance. Is it like substance abuse? So like opioids? Mm. I feel like big pharma is involved. Mm. No. Oh. Okay. Here's, here's a clue. We eat it. Um, cheese. No. Chocolate? That would be nice. I mean, I value both of those things a lot. No. Um, uh, truffles. Oh, that's a good guess, but yeah. no. Fish? Cows? Mm, water. No, I already said that. Um, you don't eat water. I eat ice cubes. <laughs> uh, I give up. Okay. I'm not saying I failed. I'm just saying that I'm admitting. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, okay, here's a clue. It's brown. Chocolate. No. Um, it's a liquid. Whiskey? Nope. Hot cocoa. No. Nope. Um, wait, am I close? It's sweet. God's tears? <laughs> <laughs> you put it on pancakes. Syrup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that took a very long time, but I got it. Yay. All right. Yet. Yes. It's maple syrup. <laughs> Did you know that one barrel of maple syrup costs about 1800 Canadian dollars, which is about 1500 US dollars? I want to bathe in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about $27 a gallon. Jeez. In 2018 in Connecticut, it was $76 a gallon. Bro. For the price of a barrel of oil, $76 is a high price for an entire barrel of oil. So compare like... Wow. That cost, the cost of maple syrup, it's very valuable. Yeah. Now I want pancakes. Me too. I've been thinking about pancakes like all night. Oh my God. I I love, (laughs) I love a good hot cake. Oh, me too. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to pull a Buddy the Elf and just chug maple syrup and put it on my spaghetti. (laughs) I was thinking about doing a shot of maple syrup after the story, but maybe not. Prost. (laughs) Then you won't be able to sleep. No. (laughs) You thought you were decaf, Kathy. (laughs) Kathy. Okay. Don't tempt me with a good time. Oh, I know. Okay. (laughs) So maple syrup is very expensive, but it wasn't always this way. Hmm. According to some syrup producers, the industry was a hard one as recently as the 1980s, and it was difficult to live off of making maple syrup. If there was a bad year for weather, no one made any money. And that is when the cartel came in. No way. (laughs) For maple syrup? Yes. I feel like it's such a painful... Like, it takes so much, and then you have to boil it. It's, It's a long process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a cartel for syrup. I've okay. There is. According to Merriam Webster Dictionary, a cartel is defined as a combination of independent commercial or industrial enterprises designed to limit competition or fix prices. And that's what the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, or FPAQ, which I will from now on refer to as the Fed. Which is just a nickname that I made up. Okay. I know it's not the it's not the Fed Fed. It's like 
it's this like Fed that I'm fog. talking about. Yes. The fog. This is what the Fed aimed to do. Okay. It's often described as the OPEC of maple syrup. So OPEC is the cartel that fixes oil prices mm. around the world. The Fed of maple syrup producers was established in 1989 and now regulates more than 11,300 maple syrup producers. Mm. It's a legal cartel designed to control the prices of maple syrup. Interesting. The Fed's producers make 94% of Canadian maple syrup and 77% of the world supply of syrup. Here's how it works, just so you have an idea. Okay, paint a picture. Okay. So every maple syrup producer in Quebec has to belong to the Fed. Okay. Again, this is a nickname I made up. <laughs> okay. The Fed has a quota that every producer <laughs> has to meet when they... When the Fed receives the syrup, they inspect it and taste it. <laughs> what a job. And grade it. Diabetes <laughs> everywhere. I wonder if they have to spit it out like wine tasting. I'm very curious. I feel like we could probably, if I were to go to LinkedIn and message someone who is a syrup connoisseur. We, we, we could find this out. I, I'm determined. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll figure it I'll out. I'll forget about it when I wake up. But anyway... <laughs> So once they taste it and grade it, if there's extra syrup, maybe they had like a really good year with mm -hmm. a good harvest, it goes into the Fed's Global Strategic Reserve or International Str Strategic Reserve, which they keep in barrels and warehouses around Quebec. Who knew? I know. They have a reserve of maple syrup. When there's a low production year, maybe the weather's bad, they don't produce as much syrup, they can take the syrup out of the reserve to meet the demand okay. around the world. So consumers don't have to go without syrup. Good. And yeah, can you imagine? No, don't don't put that in the world. I had to live without toilet paper for like no. <laughs> I know. Um, it's all about keeping prices stable amid fluctuating supply and demand. Nice. So the Fed's quota system works really well for some producers, but for others, not so much. They want to do their own thing. They want a free market. They don't want to be told what to do by this organization. Plus, producers only get paid once their syrup sells, which can take a very long time. Uh, so it's a pay on performance method. Mm, yes. This has resulted in extremely high tensions, conflicts, and court battles among those producers and against the Fed. And yes, this involves maple syrup lawyers. Oh, why didn't I learn about this in school? <laughs> I would like to know why there this are wasn't. maple syrup lawyers. Why didn't my counselor tell me about this? I don't know. I resent this. I am going to be angsty for a while. <laughs> she crosses her arms. Okay. The people who don't want the quota or who didn't want the quota started selling syrup on the black market. No way. Yep. I can just imagine like <laughs> two Canadians in their buffalo plaid being like, hey, you got the goods? It's like, here <laughs> you, you want go. some syrup? In <laughs> uh, like a buffalo plaid trench coat. <laughs> Sorry, <Okay>. Canadians. <laughs> this is two times in a row that I had an ass of myself with Canadians. Uh, me too, okay. but, you know. I got the good stuff, babe. It's w w all love. All it's love. all love. Nothing but love. Nothing but net uh, and love. 
But when people started selling on the black market, the Fed would slap them with really hefty fines in like the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I thought you were going to say slap them on the wrist. Like, don't oh, do that. No. Okay. More than that. <laughs> More than that. Yes. So on the black market, producers, well, first they meet their quota that they have to give to the mm-hmm. Fed. And then they have this extra syrup that the Fed would normally take and put in the reserve. Mm-hmm. But they just don't give it to them or don't report it. And they sell it to people called barrel rollers mm-hmm. who then resell to exporters. And then they can, you know, sell it to other places. And yeah, so the the exporters can also be liable for fines because you have to be authorized to buy and sell maple syrup in Quebec. And and this organization only applies to Quebec. So like other if they're you're making syrup in another Canadian state or territory, are they called territories? Um, then you're, it doesn't matter. As long as you're not selling syrup that was produced in Quebec. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so there's lots of rules about it. But first I wanna dive a little bit into the history of maple syrup. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so uh it all started with the native (laughs) well yeah a tree the sugar maple and indigenous people in north america in what is now the united states and canada harnessed the sap of the sugar maple thousands of years ago and learned how to make maple sugar and maple syrup In Quebec, it was probably the Algonquin tribes in the U.S. In Michigan, for example, there were the Chippewa and Ottawa tribes. Other tribes who made products from maple sap include the Menomini and the Ojibwa. The Ojibwa, for example, would boil the sap down into sugar and use that as a primary food seasoning. Uh, mixing it with meat or fish oftentimes they would make the sugar they would like put it in the pot with meat or fish and then take out the meat or fish and then continue boiling it so it was like multitasking kind of so good doesn't it like i've never really thought about putting maple syrup on fish but i feel like that would be really good or like maple sugar something i've made before is you put like, I can't think of it, Dijon and brown sugar, Ooh. and then you bake it, and it makes like kind of a sweet tart. Like that sounds really good. It, it is good. So I could see it. I could see it. Yeah. With the brown sugar, that sounds so good. <laughs> I'm so hungry. I know. The Menominee tribe would make a cut in the tree, and this is similar to the other. Uh, processes of the other tribes they would cut the tree and use a wooden spout to put it into some kind of receptacle a wooden one probably and then they would boil it to make syrup strain it uh, through woolen blankets to remove any detritus but some of the first like original processes of making syrup or sugar was that the sap was collected in troughs 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 made out of bark 
and then were left outside in the winter to freeze and then they would take out the ice and then behind there would be syrup um and then once cookware was sort of invented around the first century then um, they started boiling and doing it that way there are different legends that explain the initial discovery of maple sap. The Algonquin tribe has a story about how the chief of one tribe threw a tomahawk at a tree and then sap ran out of the tree and then his wife boiled venison in the liquid. I would I would have been like, oh no, I made the tree cry. <laughs> Right? Like, I don't know what I would think. Like, is the tree bleeding? Like, oh, I wouldn't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's another version that says that um, someone stumbled on the sap while running from a broken maple branch. <laughs> the Chippewa and Ottawa tribes have a legend um, about a god named Nanabozu who saw that people were becoming lazy because they would drink the pure syrup from the maple trees instead of like getting food elsewhere Hmm. which like fair yeah like i would do that like if if i had like a fountain of maple syrup oh a thousand percent like what else would i eat you know what i mean like nothing anyway so he (laughs) he was like yeah these people are like not not doing this more nutrients than that Um, yeah so then he cast a spell on the maple trees that made the syrup turn into a sap that oh. required um, boiling or processing like before it could be yeah, made into a syrup. Mm. So, yeah. And then, you know, when the, when the white colonists came, Native Americans taught them how they made syrup, including the French in Quebec. When you make maple syrup, to make one gallon, you need about 40 gallons of sap, which is a lot. That's a Um, lot. Sap is 98% water. Wow. And then once the producers collect all the sap, they boil it over a fire. And um, if you keep boiling it after that, it turns into a sugar. So instead of, you've probably seen pictures or maybe, I know we did this in Girl Scouts. We went and saw like tapping trees where they have like buckets underneath and stuff. Mm -hmm. But in Quebec nowadays, they usually drill holes in the trees and have like these plastic tubes. It it, kind of looks like a maze. They're like all over the place in Mm -hmm. these groves of trees and they, so that the sap goes straight down the tubes Mm -hmm. into these really big tanks they're like vacuum suck oh kind of the the sap yeah yeah out of the trees (laughs) so it's like kind of high tech but um pulling like a lorax i don't know i feel kind of bad for the tree yeah the tree's like help (laughs) you're sucking the life out of me and i'm like ooh, (laughs) syrup (laughs) (laughs) i work all day for you Uh, no, I'm, I think I think the trees are fine. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm projecting some kind of... 
sap typically runs out of trees when the temperature is around 40 degrees after a night when it's below freezing. So like March or April is when they usually harvest most of the sap. Interesting. I would think it was in like fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in the spring usually, I think. Um, well, act, but also like temperatures can get around then. That's well. true. I guess so. when I think of maple, I think of fall because the leaves. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. Either way, I'm fine, but 45 degrees. Cool. Yes. Cool. And uh, the places where they have like groves of sugar maples are called sugar bushes and where they process the syrup is called a sugar shack. I feel like that would be a, a fun pet name, like, hey, sugar bush. <laughs> hey, sugar shack. Hey, sugar bush. <laughs> <laughs> sugar so now that we've learned more about maple syrup and how valuable it is i want to talk about a crime that took place regarding maple syrup oh my gosh okay (laughs) tell me more on august 24th 2012 (gasps) okay the fed informed the police that there was a theft at one of their reserve warehouses so where they keep their the global supply reserve of maple syrup in these big barrels in different warehouses all around Quebec, there was a theft. Uh, a worker named Michael Gavreau or Michel Gavreau. Michel. <laughs> I'm going to butcher some of these French names. I'm so sorry. Bonjour. In advance. <laughs> I do not speak French for the record. She speaks German. <laughs> yes, it's, it's you not could French. Just do, you could just do the <laughs> German pronunciation. Michel <laughs> Gavreau. No. Okay. Michael. Michael. <laughs> was doing inventory in a warehouse in the town of Saint Louis de Blanfort. I mean, that sounded pretty French. Jeez, to me. I'm so sorry. Okay. And he was trying to climb up on the barrels to count. inventory. Yeah. Count them or whatever. Sure. He and should have gotten a ladder. Anyway, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. So he was climbing up on them and he nearly fell because they shifted underneath him and they're not <gasps> supposed to do that. Because each barrel weighs over 600 pounds each. But for these, that wasn't the case. They opened the barrels and found that they were empty. Uh, No. Others noticed that some of the barrels were rusting and maple syrup shouldn't do that. Like even if it's cold, it doesn't create condensation or anything. So they opened those up and they found they were filled with water. (gasps) No. That's not good on pancakes. <laughs> Ew, no. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> it's like pour water on your pancakes. <laughs> okay. Overall, 9,561 barrels of maple syrup were stolen. How? Worth more than $18 million. $18 million. $18 million. Oh, my God. The biggest theft ever in Quebec. Ever. Yeah. Wow. The police set up a team of 250 investigators, which included the Mounties <laughs> and U.S. Customs. Okay. It was the biggest crime scene they'd ever investigated. They spent two weeks figuring out which barrels were empty and which weren't. And how are they supposed to find the stolen syrup? Like, how do you find stolen maple syrup? Just look at someone who's, like, rolling around. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I I feel like Willy Wonka stole them. Probably. Well, no, he didn't. Well, here's here's what happened. Spoiler alert. It wasn't him. It wasn't him. In the process of the investigation, everyone was a suspect. Police interviewed over 223 witnesses. Wow. 
one clue was on the barrels themselves. There were marks on them that indicated a certain kind of forklift was used to move them. It said Croatone. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that would be amazing. Whoa. (laughs) They went to Canada. They're back. They're back. A forklift. Okay. (laughs) A certain kind of forklift was used to move them. That wasn't the standard machine that moves them because the forklift they normally use doesn't leave marks. (laughs) So it was a different kind of forklift. Interesting. The investigators went around to places where you can rent these forklifts and they found a name from someone who had recently rented one. Ronald McDonald. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think they use real maple syrup at McDonald's anyway. I can find out. Okay. The name of the person who'd recently rented... This forklift is Sebastian Utra. Sebastian. Sebastian, <laughs> a truck driver. And they, so they interviewed him. He was like, man, I'm just a truck driver. Like, yeah, well, so is the last guy you talked about. <laughs> no, he painted trucks. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. No, he was a serial killer. <laughs> Not quite the same. Um, although maybe you do have to be a sociopath to steal that much maple syrup. I don't know. I mean, I did just say I wanted to take a bath in it. So now I feel... So maybe not. I don't know. So Sebastian was like, I'm just a driver. No one told me the I am syrup. just a driver. Exactly. Well, he said it in French. But he was like, no one ever told me that the syrup I was driving around was stolen syrup or hot, hot syrup. Like, So, so he was aware that he stole the syrup? Well, Well, once the investigators were like... What were you, you were doing? driving around the syrup. He's like, no one told me it was stolen syrup. Oh. Yeah. Who who gave you this job, sir? Exactly. So he pointed investigators in the direction of Avic Caron, one of the owners of the warehouse that it was stolen from. Scandalous. He had rumored mob ties and a history of insurance fraud, so things weren't looking great for him. Wow. And Richard Vallier. A big time barrel roller. So one of the guys that the people on the black market would sell their syrup to. My goodness. Valia had been fined in the past over a million dollars for selling syrup on the black market. Amazing. He wasn't known as like a dangerous guy or anything. Just a guy who was really involved in syrup. I just really like my syrup. (laughs) Okay. And he really disliked the Fed and wanted to operate outside of its rules. My goodness. Okay. Yeah, and there was another character named Etienne Saint-Pierre, and he was a maple syrup exporter who was from New Brunswick, so not Quebec. Um, And he was sort of in the Canadian maple syrup scene, one of the earliest exporters of syrup to the U.S. and Europe. Wow. He bought syrup from big producers like Valier and as well as smaller ones. Etienne also did not like the Fed. He compared them to a, quote, prostitution ring. Hmm. That is a strong statement. (laughs) He said the producers work hard while the Fed makes bank, basically. Hmm. And, uh, okay, so Avic Caron bought the warehouse in 2010. In 2011, the Fed was like, hey, can we rent some space in this warehouse to store some syrup? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. Like, okay, do it. And then... Wait, like, like, chat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, oh congrats. <laughs> 
he probably actually said oui oui Baby, my house. Um, <laughs> I it will never be allowed you in Canada. You may put some syrup in my house. I, I I've been that, blacklisted. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to enter Canada, ma'am. Uh, We're gonna have to take you out back. <laughs> uh, okay. So yeah, he was like, sure. Like you can put your syrup in my warehouse. That sounded sexual. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. So once they put the syrup in there, he was like, oh my God, this is so much maple syrup. It's worth so much money. Like so much money. But he had no experience with maple syrup, but he wanted to capitalize on this. He's like, I can't pass up this chance to I do something no. to make some illegal money off of this. So he needed to find someone who... Uh, had experience with selling syrup on the black market. And he knew already Sebastian uh, Yutra. And he asked him to find someone to like involved to help him. And so that's when Richard Valia comes in. And he's the guy. There's a truck stop in Quebec called Le Madrid Truck Stop. <laughs> there are dinosaurs there. No way, real ones? Well, like plastic ones. I, I thought they were extinct. Not in Canada. Not in Canada. And in June 2011, Avic, Sebastian, and Richard met there, this dynamic trio. Dun, dun. And that's where they decided what their roles would be. So Avic would steal the syrup. Valier, Richard, Valier would transport it and sell it. And Sebastian, I guess, would drive it around (laughs) and rent the forklift. He's the Uber driver. So what they did is they forklifted the barrels of maple syrup from the warehouse, put them into trucks, and then they replaced them with new fake barrels. So uh, Sebastian bought 104 barrels from a legitimate company and then they painted them the exact same color as the maple syrup barrels and put like oh. the federation uh, label stickers on them Smart. to make it look like they're Legit. the same bar- yeah. barrels so then they took the barrels with the syrup and they took them to another warehouse owned by Richard Fadia and then they moved the syrup into other containers I feel like that would take such a long time I know it's it, yeah well they did this over a period of, of time even then well i guess it's 18 million dollars worth of syrup so i know it, it's so much syrup it's so much syrup and then once they were empty they brought them back to the original warehouse Ooh. and then richard valier sold the syrup to etienne saint pierre the guy in new brunswick who was an exporter and he exported it to the u.s germany and japan wow yeah, so it was an operation. Yeah, I'm exhausted just thinking <laughs> about all that that work. Yeah, eventually Richard and Sebastian, they were kind of uncomfortable with how deep they'd gotten. I'm uncomfy. I thought it was just going to be like one right. or two barrels. Like they all got burner phones and had to text wow. each other on those because they were like, they're going to check our calls. Like, My mom's going to check my phone. Yeah. And so, yeah, then the Fed came in to do their inventory, and the guys tried to distract them. I don't know how they thought that <laughs> would work. Look at that dinosaur. <laughs> but, but it was no use. They were caught. 
<laughs> Avik told Rishad that if he spoke out, he would get shot in the head. <gasps> Whoa. He said, I know where you live. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, which is terrifying. Yeah. But then the investigators, you know, circled in and, and uh, yeah, Sebastian testified against Avik and Rishad and Etienne Saint-Pierre. Even though Etienne was outside of the main crime, he wasn't involved in stealing the syrup. He did sell it. And as I mentioned before, since it was produced in Quebec, that's illegal. Mm. Even though he claims that he didn't know. He, he said, they said I plotted, but I never plotted. Risha just called me and he asked me if I wanted syrup and I said yes. So, Yeah. Um, I mean, who would say no, really? Right. Who would say no? <laughs> Not me. The Fed went through Etienne's business. They seized all of his syrup <gasps> and all syrup. of his business documents, closed his bank accounts. He also thinks the Fed had ulterior motives that they wanted to just stop him from doing business in general so they can extend their control. Oh, so they were the looking for market. a... Okay. Yeah. Um... All three were found guilty. Avik Caron got six years in jail and a $1.7 million fine. Richard Vallière got eight years in jail and a $10 million fine. Etienne Saint-Pierre got two years house arrest. Gunshot or firework? firework. I don't know. Um, Hopefully it was a firework. T. What? At one twenty-four in the morning. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't um, know. <laughs> I we'll we'll so. see firework. Okay. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, Etienne Saint Pierre got two years house arrest and a one point oh three million dollar fine, and Sebastian Utra got eight months jail time. So they would probably be out of jail now, right? Um, I think a couple of them were sentenced in like 2016 or 2017. Got it. Okay. So I'm not sure why it took so long, to be honest. These things take time. They had to put all the barrels back. <laughs> yeah. Um, Richard Verrier, his father, Raymond, was also convicted Raymond. of possession. But Raymond. I, I don't know if he had to go to prison. The syrup was sold in small batches to legitimate distributors who were unaware that it was stolen. I saw something somewhere that I don't remember where that said that they actually recovered most of it, but a third of it was still out there. Probably in my belly. Yeah, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, how do you, how do you like recover the syrup? Right? Like, yeah. Yeah, that is, I guess I like tracking in uh, other inventory or yeah i'm sure they have a system but yeah this is just kind of an example of the gigantic tensions between the pro-federation maple syrup producers and the anti-federation producers i got most of this information from an episode of Dirty Money on Netflix, Ooh. which I highly recommend. It's one of my favorite docuseries, um, and this episode's really great, so check it out. But in it, they interview the son of a former VP of the Fed, uh, who's obviously pro-Fed, and he he claims that before 
the Fédération <laughs> existed. There was a free market, but business wasn't great. You know, people went belly up, like I mentioned. He even said some people he knew cut down their maple trees because they thought they were worth more as like wood or Aww. something than as syrup producers. But then when the Fed started to take control, then they raised prices and things got better. They, One of the lawyers who was interviewed on the show, Hans Mercier, he... The maple syrup lawyer. Um, he thinks the Fed started with good intentions, but that over time the system became more unhealthy. Mm. And like the people selling syrup on the black market, they're not criminals. They're they're just they kind of just want to do their own thing. But the way that they're fined so heavily, and the way that the Fed profits off of that is unethical. Mm. But the Canadian Supreme Courts haven't really been supportive of of that they're more kind of on the fed side they haven't really there have been cases where people have challenged these fines and stuff but it nothing ever really happens interesting and the fed kind of goes into the lives of people that they're investigating sometimes they'll like come to their houses and film them or like look into their personal finances or like seize their syrup and at one point like an example of these tensions at, at one point when an inspector came to one sugar bush, a whole mob stopped the inspector from inspecting. Wow. Um, and that inspired people to kind of take it even further. But then, you know, yeah, in 2000, there were three fires in two weeks in the sugar shacks of regional presidents of the Fed. So sus. It's, yeah, it's like pretty sus. So it's like, but like, I I mean, I don't know enough about it to take a side. Like both sides seem like they have legitimate arguments. I don't know really much about cartels, to be <laughs> honest. You don't. Um, I don't. But it seems like, so the maple syrup lawyer, Hans Messier, said that if the fed doesn't adapt to what people want then it'll fail and i think that seems like a fair yeah i'd say thing this one producer uh angel grenier they interviewed her as well she's another anti-fed producer who has sold her syrup to atian um and she they, she's dealing with a lot of fines from them for selling her syrup on the black market. She's like, I can't retire now because they fined me $500,000. Oh, my God. She said the Federation has turned buyers into criminals. They've decriminalized drugs in Canada, but they've criminalized maple syrup. And, uh, yeah, she's like, you know, people don't want to lose their freedom. The maple syrup lawyer is like, I'm going to keep fighting this crusade. At the same time, the pro-federation people are like they they said in the past 15 years they've doubled their syrup exports and tripled the value of syrup and they've said without the fed there'd be no maple syrup industry so it's like i don't know i don't know what the answer is i'm not even canadian (laughs) (laughs) but i really like maple syrup i do too and i hope that some people like people can find solutions uh, to this conundrum yeah and uh that everyone syrup, can man. just enjoy the syrup i don't know why but this makes me think it's like a canadian breaking bad <laughs> <laughs>
I just yeah. want us all to get along and practice mindfulness and have maple syrup. Like, that's all I want in life, yeah. okay? <laughs> that will be my fulfillment. In this documentary, they had a clip of people, Um, you know, when they, like, drizzle it into snow mm-hmm. and then, like, eat it? Yeah. I've always wanted to do that. Me too, but my mom has always said the snow hasn't been clean enough for us <laughs> to do that. Fair. Yeah. So, she's like, well, maybe if we lived in, like, Alaska. And I was like... We're not going to go there in the winter. Mm, we'll just have to go to Quebec. Okay. I've always wanted to go. All right. Have you been there? No, okay. I have not. I've heard Montreal's lovely. I've heard it too. I, and um, I just want to go anywhere. But yeah. yeah. Thank you. That was fascinating. I never, I never in a million years would have guessed. Me neither. Any of that. I will have to check out that documentary. I've I've seen it in passing because I honestly spend more time scrolling than watching mm-hmm. things. Very interesting. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Now I want I want pancake. I like when you did the popcorn one. <laughs> <laughs> all I wanted was popcorn. Now all I want are pancakes. Oh, yeah. so good. I was um, reading about like. I guess Canadians just like get really offended at the concept of like fake maple syrup. However, I think it does have its time and place. Like if you're at an IHOP, they're not going to give you a bottle of $15 maple syrup. They're going to give you the fake flavored stuff. And and that's the special thing about it. And it's good. Right. Like it's not the same. No. But it it does its job. Right. No. I love IHOP. I know. (laughs) Like I don't actively say I want to go to IHOP today, but when I'm there... Yeah. It's after it's, a night of drinking mm, and I always love it. Oh yeah. Yeah. My one of my goals is to go to a waffle house. I've never been to one. <gasps> Let's go on our way to New Orleans. Have you been to a waffle house? I've seen them. I don't think okay, I've ever been there. Okay, then we have there. to go. Okay. Let's it's, go. It's decided. Sounds good. Wait, do they have real maple syrup? Well, I, I, doubt I it. it's your point. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Same with like Mrs. Butterworth. My parents were always 100% pure maple syrup mm. and we make swedish pancakes and we call them lady ma pancakes because that's what my dad called his grandma oh because i guess he didn't want to say grandma or she didn't want to be called grandma so he called her lady ma because she was a lady and a ma <laughs> but anyway we always have pure maple syrup with lady ma pancakes oh, on christmas i love that syrup is so good oh my god and it's like it's it's like an, a native it's a it's an indigenous ingredient in yeah. North America, which I think is really cool. Right. Like what else can you say is I right. mean we have a lot of corn. I, I looked McDonald's syrup is corn syrup, which is fine. Uh, um But it's, it's not it's also, maple syrup. It's not, but it it works for them, you know. Yeah, no no, I'm not gonna put real maple syrup on my McGriddle <laughs> or whatever whatever. <laughs> if you're feeling very bougie, but yeah, you won't anyway. Oh, thank you. So good. Thank you. Delicious. Mm, bon appetit. Mm. Bonjour. <laughs> thank you all for listening to this week's episode. Uh, merci. Merci beaucoup. We would love to thank the artists that have helped us. Our music is composed by Colin Whitlish and music production is by Justin Toom. And our cover art is by Eric Chase. Would you like to tell them where to find us? You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can submit your own listener report or just say hi or 
ask us a question or how do you like your maple syrup oh my gosh please tell us like what like do you put it on muffins do you are you a waffle person french toast do you dip do you drizzle like what how tell us we need to know tell us how you failed and how you've come back stronger i would love to hear that uh what's your favorite self-affirmation what's your favorite quote about like positivity i don't know you can find it on pinterest let us know we collect that stuff we send it to us we keep it in our little box of precious things yes so (laughs) (laughs) send us an email at the insomnia report at gmail.com um if you aren't convinced yet (laughs) just do it um we really appreciate all of you listening and for spending your time with us let us know how you you know practice mindfulness it's like we said it's mental health awareness month but it's important every single day uh so is a well-balanced diet of maple syrup and i'm going to stop talking so tune in next week for another paranormal story i can't believe we're already back on paranormal i know i feel like we just did the other one that's how things work okay (laughs) good night we we appreciate all of you but stay sleepy and spooky good night Thank you.